Welcome to episode 281 of the TruthQuest podcast, the truth about federal border enforcement. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, share episodes with your friends, and support the podcast by shopping at truthquestshirtfactory.com, where we produce shirts with thought-provoking statements inspired by various podcast episodes. In recent days, the state of Texas has kicked Federal Border Patrol out of a specific area on their border and started enforcing it themselves. The Biden administration went batshit crazy over what they described as unconstitutional overreach on the part of the state of Texas. They, of course, sued Texas, claiming border enforcement is solely a federal power. Their argument goes something like this. Only the federal government has the power to enforce the border, and if we decide not to and actually encourage illegal immigration, give them money, food, housing, a phone, and transportation, and if we do not detain any of them, but rather facilitate their movement from the border to the interior of the country, then the individual states have no constitutional recourse. Not only must the border states bend over and take it, but so too must the interior states. On top of that, the feds claim the state authorities have no power to arrest, detain, or deport illegal immigrants. Then just the other day, the Supreme Court offered a 5-4 opinion which allows the Federal Border Patrol to destroy barbed wire fences erected by the state of Texas. Good old John Roberts and Amy Comey Barrett went along with the three fascist activists' associate justices. Now there are calls from the left-wing Marxists for Biden to federalize the Texas National Guard. I have no doubt that soon the leftists will call for the arrest of Abbott. I'm sure the FBI is already on the job digging up dirt on the man looking for an angle to threaten him with if he continues to disobey his masters in Washington, D.C. This whole situation got me thinking, as I'm apt to do, about the Constitution. What does the Constitution say about border enforcement? Because, as you likely know, if the Constitution is silent on an issue, then it is a state issue. Period. End of story. Read the Tenth Amendment or listen to episode 120. Given that we now have a full-fledged constitutional crisis, I think it's a good time to look into the constitutionality of federal border enforcement. Starting with this. Did you know that border enforcement and or immigration are not constitutionally granted powers to the federal government Determining the rules of naturalization are clearly granted to the feds, but not border enforcement or immigration. There are a couple of relevant clauses in the Constitution that people erroneously point to, including Texas Governor Greg Abbott, regarding the feds' responsibility to enforce the border. Personally, I believe relying on them in the long run will prove to be disastrous. Anyways, here are the two relevant clauses. They're Article 4, Section 4, and Article 1, Section 10, both of which contain language about invasions. Here's Article 4, Section 4. The United States, meaning the federal government, shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government, and shall protect each of them against invasion. Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 reads, No state shall, without the consent of Congress, engage in war, unless actually invaded or in such eminent danger as will not admit of delay. Now let's circle back to Abbott and the state of Texas. He issued a statement defending the state's actions, which reads in part, The executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws, on the books right now. 
President Biden has instructed his agencies to ignore federal statutes that mandate the detention of illegal immigrants. The failure of the Biden administration to fulfill the duties imposed by Article 4, Section 4 has triggered Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which reserves to this state the right of self-defense. For these reasons, I have already declared an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 to invoke Texas's constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. That authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. I want to make a couple of points here. Generally speaking, I don't like the reliance on the constitutional argument to defend a state's right to defend their border because the judicial system is a whore. Activist judges make up shit that's not anchored in the Constitution, which is then picked up by a future judge who uses the original bullshit made up out of thin air precedent as they continue to chisel away at our constitutional rights. We're going to discuss the idea of precedent in a minute. Until then, I want to touch on the constitutional argument and how this might go sideways. By relying on the so-called invasion clauses, I believe they are opening themselves up to all kinds of arguments, like what the definition of the word is and what the Founding Fathers meant by invasion. It'll end up being a pissing contest with leftist activist judges picking the definition that suits the need of the Marxists who are deliberately trying to destroy the country from within. I agree with you that the argument that thousands of unvetted military-age men from China, Africa, and the Middle East crossing the border should be considered an invasion. Or is that going to be called a potential invasion by those who want mass illegal immigration? I mean, after all, nothing's happened yet, so how do you call it an invasion? See how this can go sideways real quick? One could argue that what the Founding Fathers meant by invasion was the French or British military landing troops on our shores and burning the place down. Not a bunch of poor people from all over the world seeking a better life for themselves and their families in America. Plus, who gets to define the word invasion? I mean, the CDC literally changed the definition of the word vaccine during the COVID fiasco because the sometimes deadly, often toxic, experimental mRNA jab did not meet the current definition. They've even changed the definition of woman, making it undefinable. Why would you go into a legal fight not knowing what the legal definition of key words are, knowing that liberal activist judges don't give a shit one way or another? They're going to take you down. I really hate that Abbott argued that the state of Texas has a constitutional right to defend and protect itself. That right does not originate in the Constitution. It originates with God. It is a God-given, or if you prefer, a natural right, one that is simply acknowledged in the Constitution. All human beings, and in this case all states, have the right to self-protection. Let me ask you this. If someone breaks into your house, are you obligated to sit idly by and wait for the police to come rescue you? Or do you have a right to protect yourself, a right to repel the intruder? How is that any different than with a state or city, town or municipality? The authorities of each jurisdiction have an obligation to protect its citizens regardless of what the United States Constitution says. I mean, really, you expect the citizens of our border states and even the interior states who are getting an influx of immigrants landed at their doorstep, you really expect them to sit around and wait for the federal government to do their supposed job, which they have purposely not been doing for the last three years? It's societal suicide. I want to expand on my distrust or disdain for the legal system and the fool's errand of relying on it to protect our rights with an analogy. 
one that I used back in episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court. It goes like this. Imagine you're watching an NFL game one Sunday afternoon. During one of the plays, the referee throws a flag and indicates that one of the offensive linemen was guilty of a chop block. The next thing you know, all seven officials are huddled up. Meanwhile, the instant replay is running over and over again. All the fans clearly see the penalty committed. The crowd gets restless over the delay and starts to boo. Some players start circling around the officials' conference, trying to hear what they're saying. Finally, after what appeared to be a show of hands vote, the officials break their huddle and the head referee announces, there is no chop block penalty on the play. It was determined that the quarterbacks have a right to protection and therefore the chop blocks are no longer considered a penalty. Some in the crowd are stunned, but many are understandably relieved because their team will not be penalized 15 yards for the obvious penalty. As the game continues, the play-by-play commentators have this exchange. One of them says, Since when do referees make up rights that are not in the rule book? I don't know, says the color analyst. I thought they were supposed to issue opinions on what they see in the field based on the published rules. No kidding, says the other one. There is an NFL's rule committee for this reason. They determine what is a penalty and what is not. Take it a step further. The NFL has corporate bylaws that the teams agree to when they join the league, part of which states that the rules are determined in a committee. It doesn't say anything about officials changing or ignoring the rules. This is referee activism, plain and simple, he concludes. Now, I want to change a few words here and there in the story to relate it to the topic at hand, the Supreme Court specifically, but the court system generally. Several months after evaluating legal briefs, listening to arguments and testimony from both sides, the Supreme Court justices broke off to write their opinions. The court then announces their opinions. Abortion is now legal because women have a right to privacy. Or, same-sex marriage is now legal because of equal protection. Or, Texas has no right to erect obstacles to repel illegal immigrants. Talking heads start their debate. Since when did the justices have the right to make up rights that are not grounded in legislation? Or in the case of same-sex marriage or the border, how can the court declare something is legal where the federal government has no constitutional jurisdiction? The other talking heads jump in. I agree. But what's worse is the Supreme Court issues opinions on what they see in an individual case presented to them based on the Constitution. Exactly, says the other one. They don't issue rulings or edicts. They're not kings or legislators or gods. Seriously, he replies, just because they opine that abortion and same-sex marriage is okay with them doesn't mean it becomes the law of the land. No kidding. That's why we have a Congress. They write the laws, not a bunch of unelected lifetime tenured judges who have no accountability to the people. What's worse is the Constitution that the states ratified as part of their agreement to join the Union left most issues to the states with the exception of a few defined enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8. This is judicial activism, plain and simple, they finally conclude. You see where I'm going with this? Employing the tactics of the left, referees and officials could interpret the rules of the game to account for various perceived aggrieved groups on the field. Maybe they feel sorry for one of the teams because the other team is bigger, stronger, or faster, or throws too hard, or jumps higher. So they stop calling off sides for the aggrieved team. When the inferior team hits the goalpost during a soccer match, it's counted as a goal. They shrink the strike zone for dominant pitchers. They shorten the first down marker. Stop calling three-second violations. You get the point. They circumvent the rule book, just like activist liberal judges circumvent the Constitution. The way the Supreme Court perverts the Constitution, the rules of the game, is quite remarkable. 
It's death by thousands of bad precedents. To carry the chop block analogy forward, it would be like officials in another game citing the fraudulent chop block opinion in the previous game and then taking it a step further, determining since quarterbacks have a right to protection, we determine that quarterbacks can no longer be tackled. From now on, quarterbacks are required to wear flag football flags on their belts. The removal of one flag will be considered a tackle from now on. Precedent is made by activist judges who literally make shit up as they go. Then the next court picks up their bullshit made-up opinion and applies it to the latest craze, creating yet another bullshit made-up precedent. Rinse, repeat, and the next thing you know, the Constitution is irrelevant as it is largely today. I would argue that judges who claim that they rule based on precedent or settled law are unqualified for the highest court, or for any court for that matter. They should be impeached. Just read their opinions. If no attempt is made to cite the Constitution, then impeach them because they're not doing their damn job. Justices are supposed to rule on the constitutionality of a law, not what some other judge said 5, 10, 50, or 100 years ago. It is really remarkable how often the Constitution is ignored or perverted in order to determine the constitutionality of a law. When one bad precedent is cited in another case, which is then cited in another case, what they are doing is essentially rewriting the country's rule book. Activists and or progressive justices are able to chip away at the Constitution over the course of decades and centuries, rendering it irrelevant. Sticking with the current theme, my distrust or disdain for the judicial system, I am about to make a controversial statement. That is, the Supreme Court is not the final arbiter of whether something is constitutional. As I've demonstrated in the analogy I just presented, the justices are not legislators. They are not super legislators. They do not issue rulings. I hear that word constantly in the press and on podcasts. They are not prophets sent from on high to proclaim to the country what is constitutional and what is not. What they say does not become law of the land. Take the recent Supreme Court injunction against the state of Texas we just discussed. The opinion of the court was that the cutting of the barbed wire by feds should be allowed, at least for the time being. Texas would be foolish to abide by that opinion given that the lawless Biden administration has already allowed millions of unvetted illegal aliens into the country over the last three years. Additionally, the Supreme Court has no enforcement powers. The only power they have is their words. Texas is flipping the middle finger to Washington, D.C. by ignoring them. And rightfully so, since the opinion of three liberal activist hacks, Hagan, Sotomayor, and the one who can't even define what a woman is, Katanji Brown-Jackson, along with the obviously compromised John Roberts and Amy Comey Barrett, is clearly a crap sandwich. There is a reason the work product of the Supreme Court is called an opinion. They are offering their supposed unbiased expert opinion on that individual case presented to them. But these are fallible people. They are people susceptible to moments of stupidity, lapses in judgment, peer and social pressure, bribery, extortion, and greed, just like everybody else. They have skeletons in their closet, just like everybody else, that the intelligence community and federal law enforcement dig up. Many who serve in that role are liberal and activists who rarely, if ever, cite in their opinions the very document that they are supposedly interpreting the case in front of them against. The Biden administration specifically, and liberals generally, have regularly ignored Supreme Court opinions issued against their agenda. Most notably, FDR. Remember he tried to pack the court? Or how about Biden and student loans, or the affirmative action in college admission case? 
They complained bitterly and screamed loudly when the court crushed Roe v. Wade and sent the issue back to the states where it belongs. They leaked the draft opinion, drummed up outrage, threatened justices, and Nancy Pelosi refused to allow a bill to the floor of the House to provide the justices with additional protection. These people are disgusting hypocrites and political whores. The bottom line is the judiciary is supposed to be the weakest of the three branches of government because they have no enforcement mechanism and they have no power of the purse like the Congress. Even Alexander Hamilton argued as such in Federalist 78. Here's another fact that you probably were not taught in social studies or history. The individual states are obligated to oppose illegal or unconstitutional acts by the federal government. Don't take my word for it. Take James Madison, the father of the Constitution's word for it. He argued that states have a responsibility to respond to, quote, unwarrantable or merely, quote, unpopular federal acts, which included, quote, a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union, end quote. Refusal to cooperate. Hmm. Sounds familiar. You want another controversial statement? The ultimate authority governing the meaning of the terms in the Constitution, i.e. determining what is constitutional, falls not solely on the Supreme Court, but on the parties who created the Constitution, the states being a major player. Consider it this way. How could the founders have left public policy up to the least democratic branch of government? Answer, they didn't. Chris Ann Hall put it this way, quote, The Constitution enumerates the specific powers of the judiciary in Article 3 of the Constitution. The judiciary has no power beyond that specific enumeration, and the Constitution does not vest the ultimate meaning of the Constitution in the body of the judiciary, end quote. In other words, the Supreme Court is not superior to the very document that created it. The created is never more powerful than the creator. I want to end this episode with a quick history lesson of immigration enforcement in America. The idea is to shed some light on my claim that the federal government has no constitutional authority when it comes to border enforcement and immigration. The most concise explanation of how the Founding Fathers viewed immigration is this, and this is from Michael Bolden at the Tenth Amendment Center. He presented the case that the Founders distinguished between alien enemies and alien friends. The former are illegal immigrants from countries we're at war with. And since Congress has the sole power to declare war, the federal government has the power to regulate immigration from those enemy countries. The immigration of everyone else, i.e. alien friends, falls under the jurisdiction of state and local jurisdictions. That played out in the 18th and 19th century, where there was virtually no federal involvement in immigration. Attempts to federalize the matter repeatedly failed in Congress, where federalization was often regarded as questionable constitutionally, as it should have been. During this period, it was the states that dominated in terms of regulation of immigrants, and state governments were considered to be well within their rights when it came to the regulation or even deportation of immigrants. The idea was to prevent the permanent settlement of any persons who were likely to become reliant on local charity efforts or who might be criminals which is the exact opposite of what we have today. Anyone and everyone can cross the border regardless of health status, criminal status, or financial status, and we pay them when they get here. It's criminal negligence on the part of Biden and his crowd of Marxist goons. Several early Supreme Court cases stand out during this period defending the state's rights in this arena of public policy. For instance, New York v. Milne in 1837 the court sided with the state, concluding that the state was entitled to, quote, 
provide precautionary measures against the moral pestilence of paupers, vagabonds, and possible convicts, as is to guard against physical pestilence which may arise from unsound or infectious articles imported. And then there were the passenger cases in 1849, where the court again declined to limit state police powers in regulating immigration. The courts failed to establish overall federal supremacy on the matter of immigration. Justice Levi Woodbury emphasized the point in his dissenting opinion, where he wrote, It is for the state where the power resides to decide on what is sufficient cause for it, whether municipal or economical, sickness or crime, as, for example, danger of pauperism, danger to health, danger to morals, danger to property, danger to public principles by revolution and change of government, or danger to a religion. Things began to turn decades later in a case called Shy Lung v. Freeman in 1875, where the court's opinion was that a California state law allowing the state immigration commissioner to deny entry to some passengers was unconstitutional. The state was requiring bond for passengers on these ships. What made the ruling so important was the court's assertion that the powers the state immigration official was exercising can, quote, only belong to the federal government. I'm going to use this case to demonstrate my death by a thousand bad precedents theory as it is another in a long line of examples of the bastardization of Supreme Court opinions. They struck down a very specific statute in California which required a bond for every passenger. And based on a few words in one of the opinions, a brand new federal power was created out of thin air. The court argued that the California law will bring the United States into conflict with foreign nations, and thus something like that can only belong to the federal government because it invades the right of Congress to regulate commerce with foreign nations. Now, that seems like a fairly sound opinion based on the Constitution. Okay, so they struck down this very specific law in California. No big deal. That should have been the end of the story. But as we often see, the words written by some unaccountable lawyer in a black robe sometimes instantly, but most often over time, becomes law and gets applied to the entire country. In one of the opinions in this case, the following words appeared, quote, the passage of laws which concern the admission of citizens and subjects of foreign nations to our shores belongs to Congress and not to the states. It has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, the responsibility for the character of those regulations, and for the manner of their execution belongs solely to the national government. If it be otherwise, a single state can at her pleasure embroil us in disastrous quarrels with other nations. The case before them was evaluating a state law that was charging a bond for entry, which could possibly cause issues with trade with foreign nations. It was not evaluating immigration per se. You can read the opinion yourself. It's not very long. And yet, here we go again. Death by a thousand bad precedents. The language gets cited in other cases, which is cited in subsequent cases. And the next thing you know, the federal government has a monopoly on immigration, something the founding fathers never envisioned. Well, then comes the 1880s, when the real damage was done. This is when we see the national government displace the states as the primary enforcer of immigration law. But even then, states continued to work in cooperation with the federal government. Officials in both New York and Massachusetts fundamentally influenced the development of national immigration policy in the late 19th century by playing a central role in the making of the Federal Immigration Act of 1882. That was passed three months after the enactment of the Federal Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which suspended the immigration of Chinese laborers. The Immigration Act was the first general legislation that applied to all foreigners at the national level 
and set the groundwork for subsequent federal immigration laws. The language in the act was modeled on existing immigration policies in New York and Massachusetts. In addition to the federal government assuming sole authority to set policy and administer immigration law, it established a 50-cent duty per non-U.S. citizen resident coming into ports in the United States. Quoting from the act, The money thus collected shall be paid into the United States Treasury and shall constitute a fund to be called the Immigration Fund and shall be used under the direction of the Secretary of Treasury to defray the expense of regulating immigration under this act and for the care of immigrants arriving in the United States, end quote. By the way, the act left the enforcement of its provisions in the hands of state officials because the federal government didn't have the resources to enforce the law that they wrote. There was no federal border patrol back then because, say it with me, it's not in the Constitution. But you can see how the federal government's ever-expanding size and scope starts with a small duty on passengers. And the next thing you know, a century later, we have a full-blown, unconstitutional federal agency with a multi-billion dollar budget assigned to enforce the border, which then decides it doesn't want to enforce the border. Some argue that the final nail in the immigration coffin was the Immigration Act of 1891, which centralized immigration enforcement authority in the federal government, overriding state government's previous responsibilities to carry out federal immigration laws. The act placed issues of immigration under the control of the Federal Superintendent of Immigration in the Treasury Department and appointed federal commissioners of immigration at major ports, replacing state enforcers with federal employees. Boom, there you go, the unconstitutional expansion of the federal government. This act came partly as a result of many state governments, especially those in Massachusetts and New York, inviting more federal involvement in immigration control. See how this works? The feds say to the states, hey man, why are you spending your resources on immigration enforcement? We can do it for you. You can hardly blame the state leaders for agreeing to it. It's less of a strain on the state's budget. But what should have happened in these immigration acts is they should have been challenged in court as unconstitutional and struck down as such. But who's going to bring the lawsuit? Fast forward to today, and it is common knowledge that immigration is a constitutional monopoly power held by the federal government, even though it isn't. And taking it to the 21st century level of asininity, if that's even a word, if the federal government doesn't feel like enforcing the border, they don't have to, and the states must absorb the millions of illegals without saying a word about it. I'm going to pause here and go a little deeper into how avoidable this whole illegal immigration cluster, you know what, was. Everything I just covered, everything that led us to where we are today was unconstitutional. From the broad application of two or three sentences uttered in some shit for brains Supreme Court Associate Justice in the Chai Lung versus Freeman case, to the Immigration Acts, 1882 and 1891, and half a dozen others from the 20th century that we didn't even cover here. All of that shit was unconstitutional. It's all null and void. They should not be followed. They should be nullified by the states and reversed by a modern court. As Ryan McMakin from the Mises Institute put it, to conclude that border enforcement and or immigration is the proper domain of the federal government, Quote, one must ignore repeated refusals by both Congress and the federal courts to assume control of the immigration situation during the first century of the United States. He goes on, quote, there's little evidence of policymakers from the founding generation calling for more federal control in this matter. 
Contrary to some claims that immigration simply wasn't an issue in the 19th century, the existence of numerous state laws on the matter show that it was an important issue. And yet, few sought federal control. One would think that if the Constitution were clear about federal control of immigration, this would not have been the case. This is a very straightforward and simple argument. The Constitution is silent on the topic of immigration. Rules of naturalization? Yes. Immigration? No. It doesn't matter that some Supreme Court justices wrote words on a piece of parchment declaring otherwise. It doesn't matter if Congress passed a bunch of immigration laws asserting the same. All that matters is what the Constitution says, which is zip, zero, nada, to borrow a phrase from Rush Limbaugh. If you don't like it, pass and ratify a constitutional amendment. The state of Texas needs to protect their border as they see fit. They need to ignore all the catcalls and name-calling from Washington and the liberal and establishment talking heads. They have a natural God-given right to protect their property. The interior states have similar rights to determine who is allowed to come inside their borders. The individual states need to stop kowtowing to Washington, D.C. At the end of the day, if push comes to shove and things get nasty, Texas should secede from the Union and become its own country. I would be the first in line to apply for citizenship. And that's the truth about federal border enforcement. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, share episodes with your friends, and support the podcast by shopping at truthquestshirtfactory.com.